Hello, everyone, and welcome. Joining me on today's EV Friendly podcast is Dean Kneider. Dean is the owner of Rise EV, a Vancouver-based company specializing in conversions of luxury and sports vehicles, as well as buses and fleets. Dean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you begin? Uh, tell us about your sort of personal journey uh, in the industry and sort of how you arrive to where we are now, and then segue into uh, telling our audience what is Rise EV, how it got started. Uh, thanks. Um, I guess about four years ago, I started looking at EV sort of seriously, and we became very enamored with Tesla and the rise of it. Um, people talked a little bit about Lucid three years ago, Canoe, a lot of the new cars, and I've always been enamored with the older cars. Yeah. And so for me, I started looking at researching who was doing conversions, how you could make it electric, and it was kind of old school technology. And my research, like I said, uh, you know, paper stacked up like the Rocky Mountains in my house of the type of cars, the equipment used, the motors, the battery management systems, everything that kind of went to make the, and it was, to me, it was an oversized golf cart. And so about four years ago, I started researching, and I got sick for a while, and I spent some time just sitting around, and I drew up a business plan. And through mutual friends, another friend um, was saying to another friend, you know, I'd like to do these cars, and there was a car company down in the States called Singer Automotive. And they're wonderful, and they do restorations of cars and make them just pristine. It was a three-year wait list. That was just to get the car done. And then it became a year wait list to make it electric. And I was like, with all the people I know in the industry and my passion and love for things, especially when you love something and you're passionate, you kind of get it done quicker. And so from there, I kind of built a business plan, and I got connected with another guy who became my partner in all of this. And we have a few others that got really enamored with it. And mm-hmm. we decided to pull the pin about uh, 18 months ago and say, let's make Rise. Uh, you know, we, it took us a while to, you know, figure out what Rise was and what it stood for, and we had this grand plan, and then we've narrowed it down, and I say fail fast and pivot, where we were being all things to all people to start. Uh-huh. We focused on doing cars and buses, then we went into fleets, and then we started to look at, we looked at Marine, but we pulled away. We looked at a number of things because we didn't do all things. Right. That's- and so... We, you know, that was our first car that we did. And from the time I assembled all the parts in three months, I converted that 1976 Porsche 912 into a full electric car. Right on. Well, why don't we go into the conversion process? First, what does RISE EV stand for? Uh, How did that name come about? Well, you know, with some marketing and some friends, the realization of innovative and integrated uh, sustainable energy. Um, Not... I, I go quick. Um, for us, it was trying to figure out how power today can be seen in cars tomorrow, mm-hmm. along with the circular economy of protecting the future by converting the past. Right and on. so there were a number of ways to look at it. And so we kind of got away with the acronym and rise. We just wanted to rise up. And that's what it really became. We were okay. taking something, rebirthing it. Like this car had a flat four. 87 horsepower engine. So flat four, flat four cylinder, 84. This is one of the first cars you... Yes. So it had a flat four, um, 87 horsepower engine. I put in with the team a Hyper 9 net gain motor with 32 kilowatt hours of battery power, Mm -hmm. and that gave me 130 horsepower. Now, that car is a unibodied Porsche, and they made that also in the 911, 
So why I chose that car is the scope and scale of that platform was from 1968 to about 1986, they made that exact body style. Mm -hmm. So when I made the kit for the car, we had all the drawings for it so that if you lived in Australia, I could make the exact same kit that's in there and ship it to you. And you can walk. So, so you design the key kits. This isn't something that you just buy offline and install. Um, you're actually going through the process of designing a unique or a specialized kit to that car. Absolutely. And that's what I refer to in the industry as platforms. Mm -hmm. um, so that platform has, and the reason why is a Porsche 911, 912. The 911 had a flat six with about 130 horsepower. Yeah. We put in a dual Curtis motor and gave it about 150, and we put 55 kilowatt hours in there. I can go into the technical things in a bit, but I wanted to share it because okay. in that car, it has a kit, and we bought all the parts, but it didn't come as a kit. We had to make the kit, yeah. buy the batteries. We had to fit the battery boxes in where the gas tank was. You'll see some pictures. We also had to take out the, the engine in the back end of the Porsche has about 2,200 parts. And it wow. sits about like this. You know, you'll see if, um, well, that's the new engine. And as okay. you can see, the motor, the the EV motor in the middle is the net gain Hyper 9. Mm -hmm. And that produces about 9,000 RPM easily. It can go up to about 11,000 RPM. But we also kept the five-speed manual transmission in this car. Right. So it butts up right against the transmission of the 1976 car. But you got to remember, redlining is about 7,000 RPM. Mm -hmm. So we... There's a whole computer program. So your six main components that I'll, I'll talk about and I can refer back should you, you, you need. You've got your motor and your controller, and that controls right. the motor. Then you've got your battery, and then you have your BMS, battery right. management system. Then you have your charger, and you generally would have a DC to DC converter, which would charge my house battery. And then you have a fuse box, and that can be seen on the front stuff. So to layman, it actually sounds, it can sound very technical, but keep in mind, electric is actually simpler, uh, far fewer parts. Well, within that motor right there, there's like 20 moving parts. And as oh. I told you earlier, there's 2,200 parts in a flat yeah. four. Yeah. So oh. what causes um, the frustration with old classic cars is the amount of maintenance it takes. Right. right. So we built this car. It was done in three months with our team. And outside of changing the tires and the windshield, it's not had any problems. Mm -hmm. Once we designed it, built it, tested it, and built the computer program code for first, second, third, fourth gear, what the ratio was of RPMs before switching, and then the whole battery management system to watch your cells. Um, it, it, it is a daily driver for me when I drive it in the summertime. Mm -hmm. It costs about a dollar thirty at home to charge overnight on mm -hmm. level one charging. You can do level two, but I don't have a level two at home because... I drive it 60 to 80 kilometers in a day, and I can charge it overnight on level right. one. That's right. Just plug it in your garage. So um, what is your typical kind of customer? Like, walk me through the process. Is, is this uh, someone coming in, they know exactly what they want, they're kind of telling you what they want, or is there a pre-consultation? How does this, how does it all work? Okay, great question. We started as I, we evolved. So I bought two cars with the team, and we converted them. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to show what we could do. But in that process, we also had to do the interior. We had to do a number of things that we wouldn't do today. What The right. ideal customer for Rise going forward, as you rise up, as you take your personal favorite car you've been driving since right. you were 16, or your wife's favorite car, our ideal way right now is you bring us your car and we'll electrify it. We'll make it an EV. Now, if you do need 
get the interior to be redone like a singer as we talked about or uh -huh. so we, we have what we would like to do is our whole rise interior package and we have partners we're working with now where I can get I want to say farm it out we're just not big enough to do all things for all people but you're sort of one stop yep we're one stop we go through it and generally the two questions I, I will ask people when I'm consulting consulting with them is and Guys and girls are different. It's logic and emotion. Right. And generally, you're bringing your maybe your high school car, your Volkswagen Bug that you had your first date in, and you still have it today. Yeah. Which one's the logic? Which one's the emotion? Uh, generally, <laughs> the question of the people. Yeah. The, generally, the guy's the logic one. The woman's more emotional. But yeah. you know what? When somebody's been driving their car, you know, it could have been your grandfather's car or something, you're very emotionally attached to it. That's right. Yeah. And so the whole circular economy or keeping it on the road, we can get into other things. But I will go through a number of questions. Um, but it boils down to how fast do you want it to go and how far do you want it to go. Because of the six components, those are the two main ones that will affect what we offer in the motor options and the battery options. Is that a trade-off? Yeah. Well, I've always said, like, you know, they say good, fast, or cheap. Pick two. You can't have all three. Right. And what I always say, you can get range, performance, or speed. Pick two. Mm -hmm. Because when I have to put in, you know, 700 pounds of batteries, you might lose a bit of performance. Right. So you can get, you know, because you want to go to Kelowna. This car, typically, I can drive to Whistler in this, and it's wonderful and see the Sky Highway. And at 150, you're low to the ground, and you're quiet as a mouse, and it feels wonderful. I get to Whistler, I charge it up. Right. The other one we're building, the build will have a range for Kelowna. Mm -hmm. and, but I had to put more batteries in it. So, yeah. you know, there's always these changes. So it is really getting at what the customer wants yeah. and, and, and qualifying, yeah. they, they, you know, especially if they're making an investment. Uh, what kind of cars can work? Is there any car that can't work? Um, there's no car that can't work. It always boils down to price. So I'll go through two things here, which is re kind of a good way to talk about it is uh, I want someone to bring me their favorite car, and then we go through it. But you got to remember, I have to find places to put, put things. And taking out the gas tank is one thing, but batteries right now are a challenge. Our main goal with Rise going forward is to have our conversion kits at a certain price point, which we can talk about anytime, mm -hmm. so that it's viable, economical, realistic, and sustainable for people when they do the math. So right. that so any car. Now, there are two types. There's E-axles, where like a Tesla, the motor's in the back, and out of the motor comes two drive shafts that go right to the wheel. I call mm -hmm. that an E-axle motor. Um, and... In a V8, like you take out a V8 gas engine, or we refer to it as ICE, internal combustion engine, uh -huh. with a drive shaft. So we call that a direct drive uh, motor. Mm -hmm. Either way, you can have either or. And sometimes you can take out a V8 engine with a direct drive and make it an E-axle in the back. So the motor's in the back, the battery's mm -hmm. up front. But when that, that car was born 45 years ago, the motor was in the front. Right. It had a, a direct drive to the... the um, uh, I'm just blanking, but um, to the rear diff. Mm -hmm. But I can now put the motor where the rear diff is and just have it there. Right. So there's combinations, but to answer your direct question, there's no car I can't do now. Yeah. In the sense of, but it really boils down to price because you want to do things. We at Rise want to do it quick and fast. Mm -hmm. If we want to do custom, you know, it will take longer. But our whole goal as a commercialization of this business growing is to be able to have this car. You come in and within a month it's converted to electric. And Within not, a month, you can do it. If not sooner. That's our goal. And I will share with you, our goal is to be, right now, our goal is to be $49,900 all in. And I know it sounds like a lot, but it's a lot more right now because batteries are 
45% of the overall cost. Mm -hmm. And a 42 kilowatt battery system will get you about 180 kilometers today. So as we go into what, what I'd like to talk about is where we're seeing wins for us is in the circular economy, ESG, carbon credits for the fleet stuff, but things that will help us drive the price down. Well, let's, the, so yes, uh, batteries are, you're right, the priciest component. Uh, where do you get your batteries? Where do you source them? Um, are there cost savings with, with used batteries? Brilliant. Yeah. So you're looking at brand new batteries. Those are Sinopoli batteries that we got out of, I believe, Korea. Now, we had to buy this during COVID. So there were, it was struggle to get a lot of the supply chain. And in EV today, in the electrical vehicle world, or electric world, because you have e-marine, e-cars, it's the supply chain is really strained right now because batteries are so hard to get. And they're changing and evolving. Like, these are lithium-ion, and we made them, well, we made the system as an air-cooled system. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your direct question, we are now using used excuse me, Tesla batteries, mm -hmm. from currently from the Model S, which are lithium-ion liquid-cooled batteries. I've driven this car on the hottest day up to Whistler, and my fans keep everything cool. It's never had any problems. Yeah. Tesla's mastered the liquid-cooled system. So I like using it because their batteries are phenomenal. they got great density. They hold a lot of power, and they fit well into packaged. Yeah. But then again, the Nissan Leaf, again, uh, air-cooled battery system, which is wonderful. And so to answer your direct question, yes, we're now exploring more and more used parts for the components to drive the price down until the because everyone is trying to get, like when you buy a Lucid, a Canoe, a Tesla, a Rivian, you want brand new everything. Mm -hmm. But if you're taking a 50-year-old car and I can put in a, maybe a brand new motor or a used motor with used batteries, but all the tech, technology works together, mm -hmm. I've driven the cost down and I've made it part of the story of the car. How much, is there a modification with the battery, or is it just plug and play? Can you just take a Tesla battery and plug it in, or do you have to break it down, use uh, um, modules? There's our pictures. So here you can see the battery boxes. So everything here is now it will be on AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. But when we did this, we did it the first time. was very rudimentary boxes. We built everything, measured it, and then we sent it to fabricators because we can only do so much in our shop. But a welding with aluminum is tough. But... Uh, you had to, we had to make it a cooled system. You can't just use the battery. There's another picture where we show the Tesla batteries. We had to plumb it. So we had to put all the batteries in sequence and series and plumb the, uh, the glycol that goes through them mm -hmm. to keep them cool. And now you're making, which is kind of funny, you're making an air-cooled car now, a liquid-cooled car. Right. But you do have to do modifications, not to change the battery components, just how they sit in the car. Okay. Like you can't just throw them in the back of your trunk. You need to have them solid so they don't move, they're plumbed, they're liquid-cooled, and also the whole battery management system, which tracks every cell independently so that when you're giving the floor and the pedal, you're getting the maximum power. Right, right, absolutely. So you mentioned you'd like a standard price point of about just under 50000 yeah. When you look at the price of a new car, um, that's actually not bad at all. We'll run the economics, and I can go through it somewhat quickly. But, you know, I have a minivan. It costs about $100 to fill it. I get one week out of it. So mm -hmm. I'm $400 into my minivan uh, a month. Mm -hmm. Do the math quick. That's $5,000 a year. And maybe two to $3,000 worth of service or new tires. So you're close to like $8,000, $9,000, maybe even $10,000 a year for maintenance of a car that you're putting $100 in. And even with gas prices. So I don't want to use last year's gas prices. But mm -hmm. just call, call it $10,000, but really eight or use eight. And over three to five years, it's paid itself back. 
but it's the maintenance. So what I've always said is the capital expenditure is expensive, but the operational expenditure right. on your car drops by down by 80%. That's right. Yeah. You know, you're going to do tires and windshield wipers and stone chips still. Those kind of things exist. But you're not going in for oil leaks. Like, you're, you know, your carburetor's not working. Like, you're not going in for your normal things that cost a fair bit for a mechanic to dissect. Well, that's where I'm thinking of the, the growth potential for this industry. Because, because right now, maybe it's uh, for your favorite sports cars, for a luxury car. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you look at the price point and one month turnaround, whereas I might have to wait a year or a year and a half mm -hmm. for that car, uh, plus you can get into your favorite car because maybe you like the older body star, there's, there's huge growth potential. I, I think with any tech transformation, and I, I, guess, I guess I use music as an example, uh, a lot of the early classic recordings put on vinyl. And course, vinyl went by the wayside, and some of that was able to get transferred into tape, and then onto CD, and then onto digital. So we were able to preserve a lot of it. We lost a lot of that along the way. I think cars can be the same. We can look at it the same way. Um, gas is going to be around for a long time, but it won't be convenient, because gas stations, let's face it, are going by the wayside. Maybe you can order a can of petrol from Amazon in the future or something. Um, but here's a way of preserving a lot of that history, a lot of those classic cars, and they can well loud, uh, well into the future through this conversion process. Well, 1976 car, right? You know, that thing now can last another 20 years. And, and why not even longer? Well, I just use it as an example. Yeah. It could double its lifespan. But trying to get parts for it, but there will always be the enthusiast to keep it, a, you know, uh, an air-cooled car and the hum of the rev of the engine. But over time... It's going to, you know, we have the early adopters that are doing conversions and young kids today. And when I started this business, a lot of it was my son and my daughter driving me to do something better for the planet. Mm -hmm. And so that was a commitment. You know, when I started to think about what am I doing and what is the outcome of this and finding things that are scalable. And that's why when I talk about platforms, you know, there's about three or four hundred thousand of these Porsches around versus like taking a Bentley, which we'll talk about in a sec, you know, where, you know, there aren't that many of them, but you still right. can convert it. And right. so when I'm spending time, energy, and effort to build a kit, like there you go in the front, you've got the, I took out the gas tank and the spare tire in mm -hmm. the front. Now, the gross overall weight of this car only went up by 200 pounds on this car because I used a, a battery system that I was, I had to use at that time. If I'd done it differently today, I would have got 20% more power with 80% of the volume. Well, is that one of the trade-offs because of the weight of the battery? Um, because you're not really altering the suspension or the structure of the vehicle. So I guess you have to be mindful of the added weight when you're when you're factoring power or range, right? To to get them registered, so that's a great question. You have to keep as much of it as base as possible. I didn't do anything to the suspension. I didn't raise the car. I didn't um, uh, lower the car. I, I used almost the exact same weight, weight distribution and balance, mm -hmm. and came up with this so that it was easy. Now, if... I can put a Tesla Model S engine in this car and give it 350 horsepower. Never designed for it. So on top of that, I'd have to add twenty dollars to $30,000 worth of suspension. But then when you go to register it, um, it's not like the hydrogen days. You, you took a hydrogen vehicle. You said, I switched the fuel, and now it's hydrogen. I would have to go to and do it under a, a, restro, a resto mod, mm -hmm. you know, a restoration modification. I don't with this because all I'm doing is changing the fuel source and keeping everything stock. Mm -hmm. Now, we can, go to, uh, we can go to the extremes, but as a commercialization for Rise, we want to be able to do things fast and reasonably priced and get to 
not cheap, but a really good price. But it's it's going to have to evolve over time. Yeah, there's scalability yeah. with this for sure. And as you get into bigger location, you can start doing much more of these, and at a lower. Yep, and the batteries over time will come down because more suppliers will come to the market. But good stuff, not not cheap. And I, I don't like using that word. It's just I want things that are available, supply chain problems gone away, and things that we can get on an ongoing basis. Yeah, well, this is what's so exciting because, um, yes, it's exciting to restore classic cars and everyone loves them. Um, there's a real environmental component mm -hmm. here because uh, we do, most people recognize, yes, we're transforming to electric, uh, we, um, but the emphasis is always on new, new, mm -hmm. new, new. We have hundreds of thousands of cars that are out there right now that can last years and years. EV conversions is a way of keeping and maintaining those rather than scrapping them. Um, I think that translates into your sort of second stream of business, which is the buses and the fleets. So do you want to comment about that? Sure. What's, how can we get that off the ground? Um, it doesn't have to be old cars, but we've chosen the classic cars because, and I'll come to the buses in a second, but we chose the classic okay. cars because Vancouver is the hub for supercars, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, the type of wealth that comes with the car, and people have put time, energy, and effort, and love, and time, and attention. And if they can make it EV, it stays on the road, and it's longer, it's more economical. Mm -hmm. um, I started this also through the sustainability series with the government. Um, they put on this uh, Minister Ralston, Minister Fleming, and Minister Heyman. Yeah. Um, they put on a sustainability series, and I went to them and I talked about it because I was explaining what we're doing. But you're not going to get government support to offset a car, and you're not going to get carbon credits. The one challenge I've had with this car, and well, I've, why not? Well, why? Why, because why, it's, why it's, give an incentive on a new, but not on a conversion? Well, but you know what? It's probably a great question. I think I've just been it's, I've been browbeated because everywhere I go, a door closes on me. Door closes like. I've spent, you know, on this car, it cost me $60,000 to do it, being the first one in the prototype. I can't get an OK sticker for it. Now, you can get a, a Mitsubishi, I, I think it's the Mitsubishi Outlander. It's got an electric engine and a gas engine. Mm -hmm. It pollutes, but you can have an OK sticker with that one. But you can't with mine. And so I went to the police station. I went to um, the RCMP, and I did tell them, I said, listen, I'm going to drive in the HOV lane with a fully electric car, and I will probably get a ticket. I'm not doing it to disrupt. I'm doing it so that I can figure out a way, how could I get an incentive to be an OK sticker? And also, I, you know, from a carbon offset, we should have that ability that, you know, if you're going to take out, if you're going to take, I don't know how they measure the, CO, the carbon offset credit for a single car, but there's value to it. It's more scalable when you look at fleets and buses. And that's why we chose a number of them uh, to go after, um, trying to get the price point to half of what it would be for a fleet or a bus, which we can talk about. But it, once again, the doors have been closed because I keep asking questions that people never asked to. And I believe uh, CVES, Commercial Vehicles... CVS, Safety Enforcement. Yeah, sorry, I, I, with the acronyms. Sorry, yes. so, for the, for uh, so a Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement. Uh, they're generally, they're yeah. not only do they handle the big rigs and the commercial, yeah. but they're also handle the rebuilds and the modifications and passenger vehicles. So I've had them, and I've, yeah. I've shown the cars and everything. And the challenge is, in Canada, new vehicles are done by the uh, federal government, mm -hmm. and used vehicles are done by the provincial government. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a challenge when you do something like this. They're not sure how to handle it, because nobody really is doing it. People are doing it as a hobbyist. With my team, we've decided to try and make this commercialized. We'd right, like right. to do more and more. 
So we are pushing the boundaries to have people talk about it. How do we do this? Like, if 50 cars show up next year, how do we handle it? That's right. You know, and so I've had to, you know, it's administrative work. Mm -hmm. And so it takes a lot of time. And they've been really good at uh, Greg and um, who I've dealt with at, uh, at CBSC. Yeah, yeah. They've been wonderful in guiding me. And they said, Dean, you know, like, we don't know where to go quite yet. Because I don't think they do. No. But, but what has been really good, they've been really open. And even my techs, like um, Amonti, who I'd love to be here today, and hopefully you'll talk to him another time. You know, we, he's been in it for 30 years, and he's seen the evolution of it come and go, or mm -hmm. you know, something like, you know, who killed the electric car? Well, it did die. It's come back. Yep. And now we're bringing it back in a different form. Um, there, there's a what's wonderful about EV2, it's a very inclusive community. Like, you know, we all yeah. want to try and see people succeed. Like, GM wants Ford to fail. Ford wants, you know, Tesla to fail. And Tesla, you know, like... There's competitiveness, but in what we're doing here, the more people that are doing it's EV friendly, just That's like right. the show, right? Absolutely. Like when when I wrote the codes with the guys to work on the controller for the motor, I'm happy to share it with you for free, like you know because you, and then when you buy the kit, you'll get it. But why spend time trying to figure out how to switch the gears at what ratio? Like right. it, the more stuff that gets out there, we become a circular economy by reusing Tesla batteries or Leaf batteries. Or, or Leaf motors or Tesla motors, um, any components that we can, but we want it all to make it safe. So when you look at a lot of the componentry, I could put a motor in a car or a bus and literally attach batteries and it would go. But 80% of the stuff you're looking at is for safety. Mm -hmm. And that's where you know it's important to have that as right. well. So it's not surprising that it's just that government on the regulatory end mm -hmm. is behind where the technology is. Um, and I think it's the continuous raising awareness, uh, getting and talk, talking to the right people. Sometimes it takes getting that ticket for driving on the HOV lane um, to spearhead Norway off, because Norway is now 8% electric. Yep. It was actually, remember the 80s band, AHA? Yes. Um, it was the, the story there was the, uh, I forget his name, was one of the lead singers. He had, he had bought this electrified Fiat Panda, and um, he had... Uh, he kept, he would park in, in um, uh, because he thought it was electric, he was trying to advocate for free parking for EVs, and, yep. and he would constantly be getting these tickets for parking infringements. The car would go up for auction, nobody would buy it, he would buy it back, and it's just the publicity started to spearhead Norway's whole movement towards electrification. So sometimes it starts with just getting that yeah. ticket in the HOV lane. But the government is also, like I love the government, and I get frustrated because it's bureaucratic and you get lost in paperwork and doing things but the government has been very receptive to what we're doing but nobody's pulled the trigger and said let's do it or let's support it more on the conversion side yeah because everybody's enamored with new but just in that like you know portable power you know we we partner with a company that portable power so instead of using a diesel generator you'd have five kilowatts in the back of a bcaa car that could charge a car that stalled as opposed to running a diesel generator mm -hmm. You know, there's many practical applications, but until somebody takes it on as important to them, or in the government, you know, you need a campaign promise or what we're right. doing. And I, I challenge them with it because I, I see the value and the benefit, especially on the fleets and the buses. Um, the government, now, Ralston and Eugene, his deputy minister, Minister Ralston, they came to the shop. I took them on the bus, Bowen Ma. You know, I've had a number of government officials very interested in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And everybody wants to be kept in the loop. Right. But nobody's standing up and saying, you know what? Why? Why are we spending and we can why are we spending four hundred thousand dollars on a brand new school bus when Rise has come to an uh, uh, an ability to convert an existing bus for two hundred thousand? Right. 
Now, there, there are four main bus companies. It's political. It gets me in hot water when I talk about it because I challenge people to the status quo. You, you can't make a change without ruffling feathers. But we have Lion Electric. You know, the bus right now costs $600,000 to make, and the government is offsetting that bus by two hundred. So that the open market on this bus is about $400,000 for the school board. So the school board can buy a diesel or gas bus for $135,000. Now, their electric bus is going to cost them $400,000. If they converted it, they'd only spend $200,000. Mm-hmm. Now, there's OPEX and CAPEX. The, the CAPEX to buy the bus is paid for by or supported by the federal government, and then the provincial government helps out with the operational costs. Mm-hmm. And it costs about uh, $35,000 a year to run a school bus, um, just in gas alone. So if we had a, if we had a commitment, yep. um, government says, Dean, uh, great idea, uh, let's move forward with it. How far away are we actually from being operational into converting bus fleets? Well, we it's now getting further. The reason why is because I yeah. put so much time and energy into it. And there's a couple problems that's happening. We're seeing a massive shift to social media and culture and influencers where today four of those people should have become heavy-duty mechanics. It's hard to find heavy-duty mechanics. So there's a whole subculture that's happening. It's a huge problem in the labor attraction yeah, la- and getting people in the skilled yeah. trades. That's what's going to be my next point yeah. is you're just one person. You need a whole hundreds of you. We do, but, you know, I've worked with – so. With the buses in particular, and we, we'll pull off the cars for a bit, happy to come back to it, because as Rise is a company that you, our format is very straightforward. We're laser-focused on driving the price down and quick turnarounds, mm-hmm. so it's commercialized. And I'm very proud of that goal and ambition with my team. Yeah. Um, with the buses, we've we've shelved it for a while because I have worked with the government. Now, one of the things I didn't mention is if you're the Langley School District and you want to buy a brand-new bus and it's electric, the government will give you $120,000 grant to buy the $400,000 bus. Right. Okay, so if you take 120 out of 400, you're left with 280. Yeah. Okay? And from there, the operational cost is going to be about $50,000 a year less between gas and operational. Mm-hmm. So within three to four years, the bus is paid for itself. Now, in tourism and travel, if you buy a brand new bus and do the exact same, the government, I believe, is presently is only giving a $50,000 grant. Mm-hmm. Now, tourism and travel runs 24-7. School buses run a couple hours a day. But there's a whole ecosystem around the school bus or tourism and travel or buses in general. And in the province of British Columbia, we have two manuals, one that's five and a half inches thick and one that's five and a half inches thick. One is for the yellow school buses, AM, PM pickup, that we all see, mm-hmm. and this is for all other buses. And the government has these. This one is called the D250. Mm-hmm. And this one is controlled and regulated by an uh, organization in BC that does all the procurement of buying buses for the industry, mm-hmm. for the school boards. The challenge is, is that the four main bus manufacturers don't want me doing what I'm doing. So they'll fight tooth and nail. They'll put things in there like if you change the fuel source of the bus, it can no longer be an AMPM school bus. So it protect, protects them. And the school bus industry, the yellow school bus industry, has a 12-year cyclical flow. So if you and I and two other friends owned all the school buses, um, we know every 12 years we're going to have a cyclical flow of turnaround. And the electric uh, electrification of all the school buses, not convert, converting ICE buses 
mm-hmm. to electric is going to cost taxpayers $34 billion over the next 12 years. So what I went to the government with, and I worked with um, Ed Shriver out of Manitoba. He used to be the, um, uh, bear with me, he runs the Northern Heritage Fund. And he, he, uh, he and then Al McDonald, the mayor of North Bay, called, and he wanted to convert his bus fleet in North Bay. We had to go to government because this D-250 has all these rulings that won't allow anybody to certify it. But they'll certify brand new. Right. But they won't take the time to go, okay, for $200,000 we can convert. And what I tried to say, I, I spent an hour with Anthony Rhoda, the Speaker of the House, because most mm-hmm. things get funneled to him. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of went down the path with Anthony around it, and I was very adamant. We got to a point where if we, if you gave me 20% of the yellow school buses, so right now we have about 86,000 yellow school buses in Canada. If they gave 20,000 of those, any of them between one and five years of age, so they're still new, and we converted them for 200 you'd save 200 The school Maybe. district would save 200 yeah. So, I, Ken, I'd like to say you order one bus, and instead of buying it for $400, you are the principal of a school. I would love to deliver you a, a, your your current bus, electrified, and hand you a check back for 200 because yeah. you were going to have to buy it for four. Mm-hmm. Now, the scalability, the metrics, you know, could change a little bit, but there'd be more rounding errors. Absolutely. But I want the government. So they did call, um, and we were trying to work on a test pilot, and they said, Dean, we're, we're really strung by this D-250. And we can't get around it. And I'm not sure. I think they can. They're just not willing to. Mm-hmm. The only problem is we only have a 10-year window, 12-year window. That's right. You know, the bus companies are going to cyclically flow through it. And mm-hmm. within 12 years, all school buses will most likely, touch would be electric, if not yep. sooner. Yep. And that adds, and there's a massive amount of carbon offset. Yep. And then rise as, you know, as we visualize where we want to go. Just I'll, I'll give you this example. We want every school bus, and we did this with BC Hydro. We had them come to the office and went through. Every school bus, we want to have an eight-hour charge on the bus. Mm-hmm. Now, they only are going to operate in the morning for an hour, an hour and a half, and in the evening, an hour, an hour and a half, pick up and drop off because it's the AM, PM. It's right. not the auxiliary buses, the white ones that drive to the football games or go to Science World. In fact, these are the yellow school buses. Yeah. Right. Now, if that bus had an eight-hour charge, I live in North Van, and three times a year... I have power outages, and our school is closed. And what that causes is about a half a million to a million dollars on our economy of moms and dads having to stay home, not mm-hmm. go to work, take their kids out of school. Mm-hmm. You know, you paid for daycare, you can't use it. There's this whole ecosystem that happens. Now, working with BC Hydro, they're clamoring to find different ways for energy. And these buses, three buses from West Van, where the school didn't go down, could come over to North Van for the one or two schools and back to grid, could plug in and run the school for the time of day, and we wouldn't be out. But that is so too much for the government to grab. It's a lot to take in. It is. So the the electrical transformation uh, of our economy and of our transportation network is so vast and so big, It's one person cannot take it all, all in. It's just going to take a continually a team effort getting that message out. Um, and speaking of that, there's been a real rise in skepticism of EVs. I think a lot of people are feeling that. Um, they're being forced into this. Um, uh, we hear a lot, a lot of the chatter on the Facebook. Um, uh, it's, it's just a real rise in it. One skeptical argument we do hear with the conversion is uh, of what happened in the 1990s. And as you recall, there was a lot of incentives to go propane and natural gas. Yep. A lot of cars were converted. 
and that lasted about five years. Uh, we wanted to switch to biodiesel, same thing, that petered out. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the skeptic who says, you know what, this is just going to be another, it's going to fall flat? Personally, you know, because like, and I hear you, we all lived it, we all saw it, but I look at what Elon Musk did with AEV. And, you know, every, from the head of GM to the head of Ford, nobody believed it would, and now everybody's clamoring. And people are making commitments, we're getting rid of all gas or internal combustion engines by 2030. Mm -hmm. And they're driving it towards electric. Um, it's like uh, oil and gas in the United States. So much of them, so much oil and gas fuels political campaigns. Mm -hmm. So you have to support. Right. Right? It's hard to get BC Hydro to throw... $10 million behind a political campaign, you know, public company that provides a service. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do see that the the environmental impact of electric can only get better. Now, when I had to do the change of fuel source, the paperwork was based off of the days of hydrogen, when people went to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And also, I go back to the, the, the D250. About eight years ago, a number of great mines got together and started converting buses to hydrogen. The bus companies didn't like it, so they somewhere in this they wrote a line that said, if you change the original fuel source from the OEM's original fuel source, it will no longer be considered an AMPM school bus. That's how they squashed it. Yeah. So that now transcends to electric for now, but the government didn't support it quite the same way. Like, how many um, hydrogen gas stations do we have? Maybe 12? Mm -hmm. Like, there's more coming. It, it, yep. Without a doubt. But, you know, and a BCIT, Jesus, are amazing in what they've done. And, you know, they've got a hydrogen fill there. Now I've got one at Westview in North Van, but there's far and few mm -hmm. where electric can be on everybody's doorstep where they are. It's, it's, uh, it just doesn't seem feasible. I, I certainly see it as a future in the heavy equipment. Absolutely. Uh, maybe in the, the tractor trailers, although that seems to be going electric now, yep. too, with, with, uh, with Tesla's uh, semi. Yeah. Um, I think it's just going to take a continually coordinated effort and get people talking, uh, talking about the whole life cycle of, of this transformation, uh, which is very important. That's what EV friendly is about a, yeah. as well. Um, let's turn to marketing. Um, we want to get people excited. I, I think this is an exciting topic. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and hopefully somebody's out there, they've, they've got an old classic car or something, but they want to come to you and, and get converted. Um, what do you see the future in marketing? What does Rise EV do? Is there auto shows dedicated to this sort of thing, or is there a future in that? There is. Like you've had, there are a number of organizations that are EV friendly, but I think when you're on the main stage with auto, like I'm sad that the Vancouver Auto Show got canceled this year. Yeah. We were working hard to be involved with them and show what could be done, and they were very excited about it. And once again, it was a supply chain problem, you know, yeah. for the cars not being there. And then there, and I'm going to blank on it. Uh, oh, um, the, the, the one that's coming up. A fully charged. Fully charged, sorry, yes. In, in September. Yeah, September. Like, that's another great one. And the, 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 the group that was doing the auto show is, I think, trying to put one on at the B&E. Yeah. Um, and then we do, I do coffee and cars. I love taking the cars to coffee and cars anywhere. Interesting. Explain that. What's well, coffee and cars? Well, like Porsche Club of America. Okay. Or, you know, there's a number of places that do, you know, every Saturday morning or Sunday morning, they do coffee and cars and people bring all their old classics. And they sit and they chat. And then I show up and, you know... In the electric. And are they receptive to you? Or are you, uh, are you an outcast? <laughs> you know, before it used to be like nine, uh, you know, the classic guys weren't. Now it's like maybe seven. You know, it's it slowly the early adopters. It's getting better. It's, yeah. Because when I spend time sharing the passion around it's good for the environment, 
Um, it also costs less. It keeps the car on the road. And today, young kids are not going that way. So whatever I leave my children, like the 26-year-old today, generally they're doing car shares. They're mm-hmm. not spending a lot of time yeah. on cars. So the whole movement of automobile will change. But the next wave of gen whatever coming through in the next 15 mm-hmm. years, they're going to be left cars. And what do they do with these old cars? Because a lot of people aren't going to fix them anymore, and they've been born and bred in electric. So it's a natural evolution. So I think we're kind of two years ahead of the time, but we're two years in the right time because we're learning I, and getting there. I absolutely agree with you. I think that they're, they're going to want to preserve that past. They're going to see the value in yep. it. And that's why I use the music as an example. They're wanting to go back mm-hmm. and bring this uh, and bring it forward. Uh, I definitely see it. Uh, so um, I'm, uh, you're a, a real optimist, as, as I am. Where are we going to be in five to ten years in this industry? Well, I think the new, I think they'll solve their supply chain problems. Yeah. Um, I hope it doesn't go like the bike batteries. Like there's so many bike batteries out there catching fire or whatever so yeah. safety is massive people are trying to get the cheapest to the to the to the floor but i think with what we're doing with battery technology is going to drive longevity and distance okay. and so in five years you're going to see the lucid the rivians but also depends on how the government of canada under the federal government allows new car companies coming in because around the world there are a lot of car companies starting to come up just like the amount of bike companies that are out there right so, it, it is it's yeah. very reminiscent of what happened at the turn of the century. Before Henry Ford came out mm-hmm. in 1980, there were tons and tons of these startups yep. making, making cars, and we're seeing that as well. Yep. So the question is, I mean, will the big OEs just be buying them out, uh, or will they just take over? Will, well, you know? yeah, I tried to answer it. So, yes, in the next, I see there will be, like, there's over 1.5 billion cars on this planet. Vehicles. Vehicles. Like, I don't, you know, it's a massive, staggering number. And less than 2% of the cars are electrified. Like, it's such a small number. Yeah, but we have yeah. such an emphasis on it, so it can only grow. It will become an ecosystem. It will become the TikTok of, uh, or the, you know, the Facebook of its generation in regards to the EV world or the car world or the vehicle world. Um, so in 10 years, we're going to see a massive amount. I don't know what the percentage, but I'd like to make a bet with you, and we can have a beer over who gets closer to wh- what the percentage of cars in 10 years will be. But as I know, like what I love about the government in their sustainability series and how they're forcing, not forcing, but they're highly incentivizing like the airport mm-hmm. to be fully electric. Why wouldn't you? Right? Like when you have diesel burning things that are, you know, we know what it does to the environment under ESG. We know how it affects our planet. So why are we not trying to preserve it? Why are we not trying to make it a friendly visual vision to get to? So in 10 years, I see a massive amount moving to electric as long as supply chain and chip and the batteries can be resolved, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. In the conversion side, in 10 years, you're going to look at the 12-year-old today who's going to be driving, and he and she will only know electric. Yeah. You know, they only know, you know, they're the, the science and technology generation. We were the, the technology, or I was, you know, I, I grew up with technology like Game Boy, and then I got an iPad, but my kids have been the technology, science, and it's just about evolving. That's and, right. You know, how we can take an old classic, like we have a 1959 Bentley. Now, it's a one-off. Mm-hmm. And the owner, you know, this owner is not only that, you know, he is adamant that he'd love to see the last gas station close. Hmm. And he wants to, and he bought this with the vision of it being electric. So we're putting together a package for him. It is more of a one-off because I'm not going to get more than one or two Bentleys probably in our, our well, I could get a bunch now that people see it. But that's another platform. 
when I look at the fleets or the buses, those are different. Like you have Thomas or you have Bluebird. Those are platforms. A Bentley is a platform. A Porsche is a platform. But I look for platforms that have the most amount of scope and scale for mm -hmm. commercialization. Because Rise, we want to get the price point. But if you live in Manitoba and you want to open up the Rise shop, you can buy the platform off us. You get all the CAD drawings of all the cars we've done. Yeah. And you could open up there. And what it's, it's helping grow. You know, and it's business to start. Yeah. Profit's not a dirty word, but yeah. we want to make it economical. And the more scalable it becomes, the more economical it becomes. So if somebody has a classic car, uh, they want to do more research, or they want to get a hold of you and talk about a conversion, how do they do that? RiseEV.com. Okay. It's the easiest way. You know, we got a lot of looky-loos. Like, you know, I've got my 1994 Jimmy. It's my favorite car, and gas prices are too high. It's really hard to sell somebody on a $9,000 car that's rust-bucketed. It's not going to be a cheap conversion. So that's why we thought we'd do it kind of like Tesla. They did the Roadster. They started with a really cool sports car and showed what they could do. That's why we wanted to show fast and efficient conversions. And as we bring the price down, then we could do the minivans of the mm -hmm. world. But, you know, I've always referred to built to last. Stuff in the last 15 years aren't built to last. Mm -hmm. Older cars were built to last. So right. we can keep those older ones. But you buy a, and I don't want to say any minivan company in particular, but you buy one that's 10 years old. Like, it's rusted out. The frame's not solid. You know, the steel's only, you know, quarter inch thick. Not a, like, you know, there's all these things that hinder it from, because you built it to last in the back in the day in the way that craftsmanship, and we can keep those on the road. It wouldn't be as, you know, beneficial to keep a car that was built five years ago. But a bus that's already on the road, if I can keep it on the road for 10 more years, electric and not pollute, very different story. So the economics of it. Dean, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's been a great, uh, great conversation. Thank you, Ken. And, uh, and the best of luck to you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, best. We've got to make that bet. Yeah. <laughs> if you've enjoyed today's uh, podcast, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, uh, we have our audio podcast, which is EV Friendly on the Go, available wherever you download your podcast. Thank you very much.